Hi, this is Margot Escalt with Improv Interviews, and I am so delighted today to be presenting an interview with two incredible people here in Las Vegas. That's right, folks. I'm here in Las Vegas at radio station KKLZ 96.3 on your FM dial. And I'm here with Wendy Rush, who is the DJ here at this station. I want to thank Wendy for inviting me to do our podcast here today and her partner in crime, Tom McCourt. Hi, Tom. Hi. How are you? Great. How about you, Wendy? I'm doing fabulous. Thank you. Well, you're here as my guest because you're doing exciting work with improvisational theater and working with different populations. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But Tom, why don't we introduce you first? Tom McCord is a Philly native. That's Philadelphia, PA, and an ex-Marine. Home of the World Championship Philadelphia Eagles. And congratulations to you. That was Thank wonderful. You. Really, anything that took anything away from Boston was our favorite. So you have been working as an independent consultant with nonprofits, both big and small, for many years. For several years, Tom was with the Women Against Abuse Legal Center, and he was working as a court-appointed special advocate. In Florida, we call that the Guardian Ad Litem Program. I think it's the same yes. thing. Mm-hmm. And currently, he's on the board of the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill NAMI, in uh, Southern Nevada, North, and that's a nonprofit. Another nonprofit he's involved with is Friends in the Desert, which is an agency that helps feed and provide other services to the homeless. So tell me a little bit about how you got interested in the idea of improv theater and your work within the prison systems. I think that I came upon the idea once I understood what improv is and is not. I had a flawed understanding. I just thought it was the short-form comedy that that I think many Americans are used to seeing. And when Wendy explained to me the, the totality of what improv is, I was genuinely surprised that no one had had attempted to use improv with uh, justice-involved participants directly in the specialty court system. Yeah, it's a beautiful idea. Well, let's go to that fateful day in November of 2016 when you and Wendy met. We'll give Wendy's bio later. (laughs) Wendy Rush is a beautiful improviser, a DJ, uh, a singer, and a mom of a three-year-old. And she's a fixture here in Las Vegas, I think. A lot of people know her, certainly in the improv community. So, Wendy, what happened in November of 2016? Well, I was doing my radio show, and Tom was a listener, recently transplanted from Philadelphia, found KKLZ and fell in love with the station. He called during my all-request lunch hour uh, to request a song. And I don't remember exactly how we got on the topic, but we started talking about passions. And, of course, improv has been my passion since the first time I took the intro to improv class back when Second City was here. And I, I think he could tell by my breathlessness and uh, how quickly I was I was talking about it, how excited I was about the idea and about specifically its potential as a form of self-improvement. I came from a background that made me very insecure and very afraid to fail and uh, had a lot of anxiety and I took improv against my own will almost. It was a gift from someone I didn't want to disappoint so I, wow. I, I forced myself to take the classes but I'm so glad I did because it took me out of my shell. I am now a DJ on one of the top stations in Las Vegas and have been for three years. I would not have done that if I didn't have improv. It taught me just to take risks and not fear failure. Uh, I'm also the lead singer in a local classic rock cover band. We just got booked again at the House of Blues. And again, I had to overcome that fear, uh, which improv helped with. So I was telling, I was relaying all of this to Tom when he called and he, he 
got a light bulb above his head and said, you know, I work with specialty courts and this would be an amazing application for improv for the, the children who are in the juvenile court system, the under 18 year olds. And also we have a, a youth offenders court here which is the 19 to 24 year olds. We also have a women's court, a veterans court, and there's so many great uh, subcategories of the court system that these that this applied improv could help to give people coping skills, life skills, and it's it was very well received when we took this idea to our local judge in the specialty court system. So that was the not so brief version of that fateful day. <laughs> Oh, that's a wonderful story, though, and it's that synchronicity that happens, especially for those of us who love improv. We always talk about improv, and you ignited a light here over his head, I guess. Yes. So anyway, so Tom, what what have you been doing since then to get this program off the ground? It's called Improv for Life, and uh, you've been developing a wonderful curriculum, Wendy. And Tom, what's your process been with this? At first, it was researching to find out, because I was still operating under the assumption that this is a great idea. I want to find out who's doing it already in the specialty court world and uh, try and copy what they're doing. Uh, and I was I was very surprised, pleasantly so, to find out that uh, no one had, had used improv in the specialty court environment. Specialty courts, unlike just traditional courts, uh, seek to identify the root causes of criminality and, and fix them. And they lower recidivism. And the, the way Wendy described improv, um, I thought it would be a perfect application. So we uh, emailed a number of folks across the country, yourself included, met with Professor Gordon Bermont at University of Pennsylvania, spoke with several folks in the criminal justice system in Philadelphia, um, as well as the uh, Prison Population Reduction Program in Philadelphia, and Chief Judge Cedric Kearns here in Las Vegas Municipal Courts and gave them the basic thumbnail sketch of the idea. And they all uh, jumped at it wildly and said, this is, this is a great idea. When do we start? That's fantastic. And, and this week, I happened to be in Las Vegas because I was presenting a workshop on improv and 12-step recovery. And Wendy was able to join me in that workshop. And a, a few of the staff of Judge Kearns were present, having told us that they were ordered to come to this workshop. I think they had a pretty good time, though. And uh, I think teaching improv to all different kinds of populations. But one of my interests is, of course, drug and alcohol abuse and helping people in recovery. And I think a lot of our prison population is in there because of drug and alcohol abuse and, and mental yeah. illness, certainly. So, Wendy, you've been working on a curriculum that's pretty cool, and you have mm -hmm. an acronym for it, don't you? I do. It's called BLAST Improv. Um, the letters stand for Building Trust, Listening, and Awareness. Acceptance and support, self-discovery, and taking risks. And, and I have started to put improv games into those categories according to what life skill that they can develop. And this actually came sort of accidentally. I, I taught improv to children in a, a local art studio, uh, 8 to 12-year-olds. And it was just for, the, the, just for fun, just for an extracurricular activity. And I started to notice that the kids had specific obstacles that they had to overcome to participate in the games. I had one uh, who was an only child, very much used to getting her way, had a hard time with letting go of control. So that's where the acceptance letter came from. She needed to be put into a lot of games where she was challenged to accept other people's ideas and not steamroll the entire scene. She struggled with it, but eventually I saw some growth over the six-week course. And then I had uh, others who were on the other side where they were way too reserved and needed the tea games, the taking risks, the making bold choices. And 
I'm famous for in my small group of friends for uh, saying there's an improv game for that because uh, if ever I see someone struggling with something, uh, it's often something I struggled with and improv really got me out of my shell. So improv just has so many amazing applications. I think I think anyone who actually knows what improv is would or most would see the, the self-improvement applications. But because of places like Night of the Improv, so many people think right. improv is stand-up comedy. Right. And even more so, even if someone has gone to an improv show, what they don't understand is that we're not putting people on the stage to be funny and that's going to make their lives better. That there's a hard it's hard for people to connect that. It's the same things that you learn in improv classes that allow you to do that stage work. Those are the things that we're teaching. And and if you go to any corporate retreat where they're teaching you team building or communication, those are all improv games. And uh, it's it, there's just I have yet to find an application that it, that improv is not uh, useful in. It, it teaches life skills. Absolutely. Well, give it, can you give us some examples? Because I know we'll have improvisers and therapists and maybe mm-hmm. some other people too listening to this podcast. So, some examples of an acceptance game. What would you use? Um, the one that I I loved to do for the children, the one I was talking about who had a hard time with control. It was called Hunting the What's It, and I think I'm going to change it to Catching the What's It. So the first player will come out and and adopt a character, whether it be through an accent or a movement or what have you, and they'll just boldly declare, it's a wonderful day to be catching a blank. And the second player has to accept whatever that blank is and morph into that character. When when I had the kids, it it was anywhere from athlete, which is easy. Um, and I challenged the ones who struggled more with letting go of control to do more abstract. So I actually had a girl who was, it, it was difficult for her, but eventually she found the fun. She had to morph into string cheese because it was a wonderful day to, to, to catch string cheese. And so any accepting games where you have to accept a suggestion from a partner really, um, it exposes you to that fear of letting go of control. And once you accept and support that person's idea, one of two things are going to happen, and I'm paraphrasing someone else, either it's going, to, it's going to work out beautifully and you're going to realize that you're brilliant and it's going to give you a sense of self-esteem, or it's going to fail miserably and your, your partners in an ideal setting of improv are going to be very supportive and clap and say that was, you know, well done, uh, and you'll realize that you can cope with failure. Either way, it's a win-win situation. So that would be one example of an acceptance game that I would use. And that's also a great example of the yes and philosophy of improv, which is basically the first thing we learn when we come into an improv class, the idea of accepting any other statement or word or affect or whatever, or gesture, mm-hmm. and just accepting it and going with it instead of pre-planning and being in our head. Mm-hmm. Uh, a fun game I like is that one-word story. Mm-hmm. And when I first teach one-word story, so many people are caught up in thinking about what they're going to say ahead of time. So when the person before them says a word, they're totally lost. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a a great example of that. So how about the taking risk game? Anything on that? The one that I really is kind of my go-to is called Hotspot, where um, you stand in a circle and one brave soul jumps in the middle and starts singing at the top of their lungs, whatever song that they can think of. And when they start to um, crash and burn, as we like to say in the improv class, if they forget the lyrics or they, uh, they're they just getting tired, someone else ideally jumps in the middle. And the fear of singing is very real for many people, even more so than the fear of speaking. And to be able to have that courage to jump out in front of people that you don't know very well and sing a song that you don't have a, a sheet music in front of you, it's 
it's terrifying. And again, it's I love to reference Susan Jeffers, feel the fear and do it anyway. It's it, the bigger the fear, the more empowerment you get when you overcome it. So it would be any game. I love the character games because you have to really kind of make a fool out of yourself. You have to adopt a, a weird movement or a weird voice. And I think f- people find that in the in the context of play of game playing, it becomes fun and silly. And not only are they not ostracized by their peers for being ridiculous, but they're embraced. And so I, I love any sort of character scene that encourages them to step outside the, their natural self to do any of the, the bold games, the, the, the risk-taking games. You mentioned fear, and we were talking earlier today about anxiety being the number one mental health problem, but there's some great acronyms for fear, and one is false expectations appearing real. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where cognitive behavioral therapy comes in so well, teaching people to understand when they have a distorted thought. And you can also see that in an improv. You can recognize some of your distorted thoughts. I mean, when I took my first improv class, it was like being in therapy. And then I thought I was really unique because I thought, oh, this can work with therapy. And then I found out people have been doing it for 30 years. So, uh, but Tom, what about you in terms of risk taking and the project you're setting upon now? Can you, uh, do you have it, are there any risks involved for you or is it all fun? Both. I think risks are fun. I mean, we just built a, a zip line over the Grand Canyon because it's not enough to stand <laughs> and look at something that beautiful. You need to scream <laughs> while you're doing it, I guess. But I, I think that the, the idea of, being the first to to do something like this, and specialty courts were a very new part of American jurisprudence. Our, our system of court, which follows the English common law, hasn't really changed since the 12 or 1300s. So the idea of, of changing courts, and specialty courts are very non-adversarial, it's team building, and a lot of the, the things that when Wendy was educating me about improv, those are elements in successful specialty court programs. So this was certainly a, a, a pairing that was meant to be and the fact that no one else was doing it and the fact that everyone we've we've contacted about the idea thus far has been very very supportive and can't wait to get started can you extrapolate a bit more on what a specialty court is since maybe some of the listeners are not familiar with specialty courts certainly specialty courts is a sort of a catch-all term courts such as drug court dui court or veterans court are called specialty courts or I think more appropriately problem-solving courts Mm -hmm. because unlike traditional what we think of is you know law and order justice go before the judge and guilt is decided and punishment is meted out specialty courts or problem-solving courts seek to to identify and solve the root cause of the criminal behavior the first veterans court in America was in Buffalo New York Judge Russell, and he founded the court inadvertently when he had a repeat offender who he knew was a Vietnam veteran in front of him, and he was not getting through to this man, and he called one of the marshals that he knew was another Vietnam veteran and said, do me a favor, take this guy outside and talk to him, talk some sense into him, and that was the first veterans court mentor program that day. That court is only 10 years old, but for participants who went all the way through the program, the recidivism rate was between zero and three percent. And for a criminal court, that's amazing. It's a beautiful story. And the drug and alcohol courts, I, they did start, New York City had one of the first drug courts, I believe. We certainly had them back where I am in Collier County, Florida. So the, tell me a little bit more about the populations you're going to be working with. And Wendy, you can jump in at any time. We will be working with Judge Kern's Yo Court here in Las Vegas both with the parents group, which is very active and a very important part of the success of Judge Kern's court, and with the participants themselves, addressing particularly codependency issues with the parents, 
and Wendy is designing specific curricula for that, but also addressing some of the, the trust issues and the ability to take healthy risks in a healthy way that some of our participants just will have never learned. It seems like it might be a good venue too, eventually maybe, for a family, for family groups to actually get together and play. I am so looking forward to doing the family groups, particularly with the role-playing, the character scenes. I would love to, and I'm sure this is not an uncommon practice in the therapy setting, to switch their roles, to, to, mm-hmm. to have scenes, but not in the serious way that they're probably used to doing it, in the more fun Especially with the uh, what you were saying with anxiety and the cognitive behavioral therapy, I, I actually have started to write my own games, my own improv games, because I would love to take each of the cognitive distortions that are a part of cognitive behavioral therapy and putting them into scene work and kind of giving an idea of how, I don't want to say ridiculous, I'm not trying to make light of the cognitive distortions, but really get, get it, let them to see it in front of, the, in front of them how far-fetched some of these ideas are. Uh, the, the all or nothing thinking it would be so much fun to put into scene work. You're looking at me like you're It's you're brilliant. Stuff. It's brilliant. Why didn't I think of that first? I think I'll go copyright right away, though, Wendy. But, <laughs> Trademarked. And, 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 you know, really, they are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Some of the cognitive distortions, mm-hmm. like the what-ifs. Mm-hmm. What if this happens? What mm-hmm. if that happens? Mm-hmm. And I like to take people to the, what if it happens? So what happens next? And what happens next? And what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? Mm-hmm. And it's hard for people to really come up with what's the worst thing. When the, and it, what, it, what it is is people are negatively hallucinating mm-hmm. into the future, right? Mm-hmm. They're just seeing these things that could happen. But, you know, probably 90% or more of the things we worry about don't happen at all. Yeah. So creating some games. Wouldn't that be fun to put it into a scene and them to see, wow, I do kind of sound ridiculous when you put it that way. And then the next time they have an anxiety attack, they can maybe refer to this and think, yeah, I'm being kind of ridiculous right now. Because cognitive behavioral therapy is walking ourselves through these cognitive distortions. And I think it'd be really beneficial for these kids to be able to see it um, played out when the next time they, they think it's so real. Because when you're in, in inside this cognitive distortion, it feels like reality. It but, absolutely does. Um, but when uh, you can see it from the outside perspective, it, it kind of puts it in perspective for you. So uh, I'm really excited about developing my own games that are able to do that. So going back to the family, again, if you're working with kids and then working with families, the kids are going to go home to the same family. So what's brilliant about your plan is effecting change with the parents and also that there'll be games that the parents and the children, teens, can play together at home. I find just teaching kids improv they want to go home and share it with their parents and the parents will come back next week and say oh we played yes and all week long or we did something else and it's just such a wonderful family activity as opposed to just sitting in front of the tv and not talking which Mm -hmm. happens in so many families Mm -hmm. and getting them to talk and i think that's where doing scene and scene work might help be helpful as well absolutely and margo even if we didn't have a a specific curriculum just game playing just if we just did improv with no specialty agenda just playing games. I mean, if they went home and played board games together, they would be rebuilding those bridges, knock down the walls. There's in these families, there's trust issues, there's insecurities, uh, and yeah, with the codependency, there is, uh, you know, the the fear of not controlling, uh, the fear that comes with anxiety, and just being able to play with each other, be vulnerable with each other in itself would fix so many issues that are in the home. And then we add on top of that the specific games for to target each of these behavioral issues that many of these people struggle with. Yeah, and recent statistics show that one out of four Americans has been affected by somebody else's alcoholism or drug addiction. 
So there may be generational problems with addiction, for example, and this is an opportunity to start breaking the cycle, hopefully, mm -hmm. with both the kids and the parents. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's such an excellent idea. Why didn't I think of this, Tom? You're not the first one to say that, actually. One of the many great things about what Judge Kearns and his team do in bringing in the family immediately as soon as the child is part of the program is because they've seen a change in the family dynamic when you've had, it's very rare that a participant in Yo Court, uh, that's the first time they've gotten in trouble with the law. Um, Yo so, means youth offender? Youth mm -hmm. offender. And so th there's the established role of the black sheep of the family for that child. Well, that child starts to address their issues and they're not the one acting out. They're not the one missing school. They're not the one uh, with substance abuse problems. That changes the family dynamic. And by having the family in very direct contact with the court program and the rest of his team, um, the court identifies those those changes when they're going in the in the wrong direction, and not only addresses positive progress for the participant in the Yo Court program, but also for the entire family. That's brilliant. The homeostasis is so important. There was a, a brilliant uh, writer and leader in the alcoholism feel, but it was really any dysfunctional family, which is probably every family. <laughs> However, she, in her video, she, her name was Sharon Wickshire Cruz, and she had a, a mobile, a mobile. And so uh, you must pronounce it mobile in this part of the country. I call it mobile, but, <laughs> Sorry, we understand. but so she shows that when you move one part of the mobile, the whole thing starts to shift and change. And that's what we're talking about. Affecting change in one small piece affects the whole. And that's the, the beauty of this work. It's such a wonderful idea. Some more thoughts, Wendy? Uh, well, I was going to say, what uh, wouldn't it be great just on its own if the uh, black sheep suddenly identified as the uh, improviser? That was their new identity. They mm -hmm. they found they they discover this new um, outlet, this new catharsis for them. Uh, the other point that I was going to say is that codependency is a learned be learned behavior. Mm -hmm. It's it's passed on generation to generation because it's being being watched, and. It, it could, I mean, it won't solve all the issues, but the very first issue is just giving these parents, first of all, permission to not do it the way that they learned it. And secondly, here's another way. Try this way. I, I, I think so many of them just don't even realize that there's another way to do it. And and um, if someone just labels it, not wrong, but if they labels it, you know, there's a better way to do what you're doing, that in itself could be so uh, therapeutic for them. Right. There's another great improv philosophy. There are no mistakes and nothing is wrong. And we... and including the yes and we, I think we're in a culture where you're either right or wrong. It's black or white. We're all kind of border, borderline personalities, I guess. But it, it is really true, and people have that feeling. And most of the codependents I've worked with over many years has been that idea that they have to be perfect, and they have to control everything, and they have to be perfect, because if I'm not in charge, everything's going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know where we got into, we evolved or devolved into this society of this false dichotomy of, of there's right and there's wrong, but how many, if we just applied the yes and concept to our daily lives, how many people would not struggle with rejection? You, you won't be rejected if you're not wrong, but we are, we, we think... We're such an extreme thinking, which full circle here is in itself a cognitive distortion. So just applying the yes and concept, I would challenge anyone to who even hasn't studied improv to go home to their relationship. And instead of saying, no, I don't want to do this. Yes, I hear your thought. And what if we did this as well? Go to work. And the next time you have a team meeting and say, you know, yes, and I think that without taking a single improv class, if you just challenge yourself to say yes, and 10 times a day, you would see a dramatic change. I guarantee it in your in your life outside of the classroom. I agree. So any other things you can tell me about the program right now? I know you're getting ready to prepare for the courts to look at it and examine the 
program, and I'm sure it's going to be fantastic once it's up and running. We are really excited to start applying and collecting data. We've submitted proposals to two of the court programs here in Las Vegas and gotten feedback from both of them, which we are incorporating at both an administrative level and Wendy's incorporating into the custom curricula. So we, we will have exactly what the courts are asking for, and then when we conduct when Wendy conducts the first sessions, we will monitor and analyze the results and, and see what happens. It's incredibly fantastic. And we talked about, over lunch, talked about franchising because I could see bringing this program to where I live in Collier County. I could, I could see bringing it to Fort Myers, Florida. And I think that would be such a wonderful gift to be able to pass on. In our ideal business plan, that is a not even remotely far off possibility that we are, are wanting to do. And that's the way many of these specialty court programs evolve, is a judge who, you know, in a state where there was no specialty court, says, I'm going to start a veterans court. And they go to a conference where you just presented, uh, and they learn something. And they take that back, and they incorporate that into their system. And they, they go to the NADCP website, allrise.org, to learn about specialty courts. And they find out that a court similar to theirs, five states over, is doing something else, and they incorporate that. So I think that when this idea catches on, because it is based in learning positive skills, it's not pharmaceutical dependent, I, I think that it's going to be very, very widely adopted by the criminal justice industry. Yeah. I think you're right. Well, and right now we're just we're doing just the youth offenders and the juvenile courts, which right now we're tackling codependency, we're tackling the stress issues with the, with the juveniles. But there's also a veterans court here in Las Vegas, and improv has been used for the post-traumatic stress disorder application. Uh, so there's already been research done with that. There's also a women's court. I mean, can you imagine what we could give to the women who have been uh, in domestic violence situations? Uh, these games teach you... Risk-taking, healthy risk-taking. They teach you building trust. They teach you self-esteem. It's just there's, I really have not found an application improv is not good for. I totally agree. It's, it's just pervasive. And, all, and all, all you're doing is playing games. So many people don't even realize they're getting life skills taught to them because it's fun. It's fun. And, and we're I think, laughing. And, we're la- and the thing is, of course, laugh reduces the stress. So you mm-hmm. get people in and they mm-hmm. start laughing. Some of their fears and anxieties will start melting away and they learn that this is a coping tool. Find more things to laugh about. Mm-hmm. Look in the mirror, whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. And even after, if it's just one class, you learn not to take yourself so seriously. I mean, that in itself is such a beneficial thing to learn. Well, folks that are listening, you'll see on the website all the links to Tom and to Wendy for more information about the program. And in closing, I'd like to say what an honor it has been to speak to you two groundbreaking pioneers in the work that you're doing. And Tom, wonderful to meet you. And Wendy, thank you for being my Vegas guide. It was my pleasure. Because I came out here a Vegas virgin. You did. Uh, 16 years I've been here, and I I liked being able to see it through the wide eyes of the Vegas virgin. So thank you. (laughs) And thanks for joining us today. Bye-bye.